I'm Dr. Jacqueline Champlain, a family medicine physician in Austin, Texas. And joining me today is my friend and colleague, Aaron. Hello, my name is Dr. Aaron King. I'm a family medicine physician in San Antonio, Texas. Please take a moment and review the disclaimers Let's get started. Today we'll be discussing a framework for approaching the treatment of older adults with type 2 diabetes. Thinking about the older adults in type 2 diabetes that you see in your clinic, how do we determine A1C target? How do we assess for changes in their health that might require an adjustment to their treatment plan? And how are we gonna incorporate all of the issues that are unique to the older patient into their treatment and into their glycemic control targets? The ADA has helped us out here by providing a framework to help us stratify patients into treatment approaches. As we all know, patients have multiple domains that we need to consider, medical, psychological, functional, and social. And so, as always, diabetes treatment for the older adult, of course, Aaron, I tend to individualize that based on the patient. How about you? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is really where primary care can shine. You know, we take care of most of diabetes anyway. Yeah. And I think we're very good at assessing these different domains, bringing them into the conversation, looking at the patient as a whole, and also including family members in that decision-making process. So reviewing the American Diabetes Association guidelines, we're going to go across from left to right here, determining the health status of the patient. So starting with our sickest patients, patients that are in very poor health, okay? So they're in long-term care facilities. They've got end-stage chronic illnesses. They've got moderate to severe cognitive impairment, or they're having a problem with those activities of daily life. And so when we've determined that their life expectancy is limited, and so what the ADA has stated is that when patients have this very complex health status that we should avoid reliance on that A1C actually and base the glucose control decisions based on avoiding low blood sugars for the patient and symptomatic high blood sugar spikes. So in general, they're wanting the blood sugars to be between 100 to 110 to 180 to 200. What do you think about that, Aaron? Yeah, so I'm really glad that ADA, you know, came out with these guidances for us. And I think that both on the provider level and the patient level, we have been so used to looking at A1C throughout the lifetime of their diabetes care. It's not intuitive that we stop looking at A1C or maybe use it as a secondary endpoint instead of a primary endpoint. Right. The other thing I like here is that we have some guidelines in terms of glycemic targets. Now, these seem a little bit complex for what would otherwise be a simplistic approach to diabetes. Yeah. So I'd like to just kind of simplify this a little bit and say probably between 100 and 200 for our patients is a good sweet spot where we can avoid hypoglycemia, avoid hyperglycemia, and let the diabetes go to the background for once and take care of the, these other more complicated medical issues that uh, this patient might be under. Moving along, if patients are sort of in complex or intermediate health, which is patients that have multiple coexisting chronic illnesses or two uh, ADL impairments, or you feel that their cognitive impairment is mild to moderate, then essentially life expectancy sort of intermediate, right, could go either way. That's where we do continue to cling to that A1C that we're also comfortable with. So um, we wanna try to get that A1C less than eight, and then backing down that lower limit to 90 and pushing back that upper limit to the 180. 
Yeah, so this is that patient where we've been aggressive with them through most of their life. We've been telling them to always get their glucose better, yeah. lower their A1C, and we've decided, you know, we need to move the goalposts on you now. We're gonna we're gonna relax a little bit here with diabetes. We're just gonna shoot for an A1C less than eight. Yeah. And I think that's a conversation that we need to have probably multiple times. You know, we've told the patients so many times that they want to lower A1C, right. and now we have to back it up and say, you know what, it's okay to not be 6.5 anymore. Uh, that doesn't mean we're giving up on your health or your diabetes, but we just don't need to be overly intense. We need to work on that de-intensification that we talk about. Obviously, if your patients are healthy, but few coexisting chronic illnesses, that's where we continue to look at that uh, 7 to 7.5 range again, um, sort of our more traditional numbers that all of us learned more in school. I would say that, you know, when we look at NHANES data around all of diabetes, we still see that despite advances in, in uh, therapeutics that we've had over the last 10 or 15 years, about half of patients are still not under an A1C goal of less than seven. So again, I think this slide does a great job of kind of reminding us that while we're constantly pushing for better control in that younger, healthier patient, we do need to remember and think about de-intensification for those older and more complex individuals. The glycemic targets in older adults, we haven't been doing a great job individualizing them. And so in general, you'll see that all of these groups of patients, the good health patients represented in red, patients in intermediate health in green, and patients with poor health sort of in this purple color, everyone's really clustered around that six, seven range. And so this is an area for improvement definitely across the board for all providers um, that care for older adults. You know, when I first looked at this data, I was actually a little bit surprised. I would have thought that as a group, we would have done a better job of, of allowing A1Cs to come up a little bit higher in that yeah. complicated patient and maybe doing a better job with that healthy patient getting that A1C down lower. And yet when we look at this, we, we don't really see that. You're right. We kind of are very fixed in the way that we think about this. You know, many times we talk about inertia and therapeutic inertia and trying to get patients to a better goal. I believe there's also some inertia with de-intensification. Yeah. We tend to just stay doing what we're doing. And uh, that's one of the things we need to be aware of in that older population. Okay, talking about cognitive impairment, it is positively correlated with that low blood sugar risk. And so as clinicians, we need to be sure that we're assessing this in our patients frequently. I personally like using the mini mental state exam or the mini cog. When patients start to have that cognitive impairment, they may be less able to identify that their blood sugar is getting low. Essentially simplifying the treatment for our patients you know, it needs to be adjusted and simplified so that they don't get those low blood sugar attacks, which obviously worsen that um, cognitive outcome. Yeah, and like you said, you know, with this patient that's starting to have cognitive impairment, because this is a circular argument, if you will, it's hard for even caregivers to know, is the patient having true cognitive impairment yeah. or is it from hypoglycemia? And how much are the two interrelated? And can that person with impairment actually tell the provider or the caregiver, I'm having hypoglycemia, right? So it's very, very difficult to distinguish these two. And I think one of the points that is made on this slide, which is really good, is the use of CGM in this population. And so now we have a tool that we can more, uh, we can better assess uh, that risk and, and uh, the occurrence of hypoglycemia yeah. in this very difficult to otherwise treat patient. So obviously lifestyle management in older adults should be tailored to how frail they are. If your patient is independent and mobile, you can try doing a maximal exercise test. 
get up and go tests I think we all know about. We consider lifestyle interventions for those independent and mobile patients, right? All the things that we normally recommend that are good, lower the blood pressure, thinking about reduced need for medications. And then I like to tell patients to avoid large carbohydrate loads at any one meal. So essentially they can have whatever they want to eat, they just can't have it all at once. And then in our patients that are frail, I focus more on protein intake. And then I try to avoid medications that would cause that body weight reduction if they already are pretty frail. You made some great points here. This is very you know, complicated. Again, it stresses this idea that in primary care in particular, we need to be very aware and understand those, those dynamics within that patient and that this whole concept can move on us, right? So we may know a patient really well for 10 years and we think we understand their, uh, their status and then all of a sudden something will change where maybe they have an injury or a fall and now they've become more frail yeah. and now they can't perform those ADLs and that frailty then spirals. So I think we need to be aware of that and that goes back to how we need to uh, constantly be in conversation with restructuring their glycemic goals to make sure it's matching what we're seeing in their functional status. And then of course, we want to consider our patient's living situation and their social support. And as a primary care provider, I think we're uniquely positioned to know these things. We know patients' families, their neighbors, we live in their community. So it's helpful for us to be able to put them in their everyday life and then think about what they can and what they can't do, what they can and what they can't access. And so essentially patients can progress to long-term care, but they don't have to, right? Patients can progress to having either a very long or a short uh, life expectancy. So it's important for us to think about the patient as a whole in regards to addressing their diabetes care in sort of a larger context. What do you think? You know, one of the things I've been happy with is the ADA has had these guidelines in place now for, for over a decade. And so I think this concept of assessing these different problems and, uh, and they're using them to integrate into A1C targets is something that we're now becoming accustomed to because we've seen this year after year. One thing that also strikes me is uh, patients or even other providers may ask, well, what if one of uh, these uh, categories is far to the right, where some are over to the left? How do we make that judgment? And I think that's a conversation that you would have with the patient and the family. But it occurs to me that most of these uh, different criteria all move together. So usually it's the case that as life expectancy goes down, complexity goes up as well, risk for hypoglycemia goes up as well. And so usually we find that these things move left to right kind of homogeneously. And I think that makes our job easier in terms of uh, deciding on a glycemic framework. Definitely. So in summary, when we're thinking about the individualized diabetes management in older adults, in terms of putting that into your everyday practice, I'd say the most important aims are to make sure that we liberalize those glycemic goals. We go ahead and relax back from our previous A1C targets based upon the health status of the patient, remembering that when we do this, it improves the adherence, costs reduce the side effects to the patient, and when things are simpler, we can paint that as a win for our patient. Yeah, again, there's a lot of very good information here in this slide. I'd like to highlight at the bottom there the practical tips, which I think are great. You know, we talked earlier about maybe not needing an A1C in that, in that more complicated end-of-life patient and really just going on some basic uh, glycemic goals during the day. Definitely. Also, we need to think about the complexity of the regimen that we're asking them to do, maybe reducing not only the number of medications, but even the pill count, the pill burden that a lot of our patients feel. 
and trying to combine agents together so that we can make that regimen much simpler for the patient. And then finally on the right, you know, one thing that we probably don't use as often uh, but really need to think about is maybe those fixed ratio combinations of insulin and GLP-1 where we can have dual action that is very complementary in a single injectable uh, that would make things much more simple. And you know, many of these patients rely actually on their family members or caregivers to administer their medications. And so while we think about pills as being something that's automatic for our society, uh, it, it's also worth mentioning that a caregiver could give that single injection either in the morning or maybe in the evening when they're around uh, the patient, and then there's nothing more to do the rest of the day, and that is something that we need to consider. Definitely. I think um, reducing the number of needle sticks is really helpful for the patients as well. And so having that fixed ratio combination where you have the insulin and the GLP-1, I just love a good two for one, honestly. And then especially with the CGM, like we had talked about before, means that the patients don't have to poke their fingers so much, especially since we're looking and seeing that they're having those high blood sugars after meals. Um, so certainly simplifying the regimen for them also benefits their family. Yeah. So in general, we want to avoid the low blood sugar in patients. Treatment should be adjusted and simplified to reduce the risk of low blood sugar. Pill boxes for patients that they are gonna need to maybe take some pills for their blood pressure, their high cholesterol, some of their other comorbid factors. And so sometimes if we are having family members help out, asking them to make that pill box or explaining to the patient how to make an AMPM pill box may help with them being more adherent to their regimen. For frail adults, the goal of exercise programs is not that we're trying to get them to lose weight, rather, but to help them to be strong. And then for patients that are non-frail, our lifestyle interventions still do reduce need for medications or the dose of medications. So patients, of course, that are more active, I'm sure you find as well, they need less or lower doses of medicine because the benefits of exercise really help them. And then, of course, patients who are generally healthy and living at home are generally able to self-manage, whereas those patients that are in the assisted living or in long-term care facilities may struggle with self-management. So we have to consider that as a factor as well. Yeah, I mean, in summarizing all these different factors, I think it, once again, it stresses that so often as providers, we're thinking about something just from the medical perspective and maybe not considering the whole patient. Yeah. And again, this is where primary care really shines to think about all these different things, bring them to the forefront of the conversation, and then make the appropriate uh, decision plan with the patient and the family. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and until next time.